Good afternoon. I call this meeting of the Health Service Board for the 8th of December 2022 to order. Thank you, President Scott. Call to order at 1.04 p.m. Would you please join me in uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance? <clears throat> Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Madam Secretary, would you please call the roll? Yes. Agenda item number two, roll call, starting with President Scott. Present. Vice President Mary Howe is excused. Commissioner Breslin. Here. Commissioner Canning. Present. Commissioner Follinsby. Present. And Commissioner Zemanski. Present. With that, we have roll call. We have Thank quorum. You. Thank you. We'll now go to item three. Agenda item number three, resolution allowing teleconference meetings under California Government Code Section 54953E. This is an action item and will be presented by President Scott. Uh, this resolution has been continuing for the past two years. I think we all know what it stands for and why we're doing it. I'm willing to entertain a motion for adoption. Uh, Mr. President, I move that we accept and approve the Health Service Board resolution findings to allow teleconference meetings. Second. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. Is there any board discussion? Hearing none, we're ready for public comment. Thank you, President Scott. I'll be reading those instructions aloud. In person, oh yes, I, I hear our moderator. Prior to the public comment, there is a note from SFGovTV to please un unmute the clerk as well. Okay. It may still be in practice mode. Thank you for the update. Checking all systems. There we go. I'll be looking for any messages from SFGov. Thank you, moderator. Our public comment will continue. In-person public comment will be first and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-5266, then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star three to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium, so our moderator will notify us of any public comment in 
Any virtual public comment? Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. One caller has specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. Other callers may enter the queue as public comment continues. I will indicate when there are no more callers in the queue, and you will hear a brief silence as we transition between callers. Elevating caller one now. Board Secretary, if you could transfer post privileges, I will unmute Hello. the first call. Welcome, caller. My name is Hello, my name is Richard Rothman, and I'm a retiree worker in the health system. And uh, I have an issue with my eye where I need to see an ophthalmologist at Kaiser. Caller, I just wanted to pause for a second. Um, as this, re this agenda item is for the resolution allowing teleconferenced um, in California government code, and I believe you'll want to move on, you'll want to log back in for the agenda item number four, which is general public comment. So we'll be looking for your comment then. Thank you. Moderator, you can look for the next caller. Board Secretary, there are no additional callers in the public comment queue. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific telecommute agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We're now ready to vote. Uh, we will have a roll call vote. Roll call vote, starting with President Scott. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zvansky. Aye. The, the uh, item number three resolution passes unanimously. Item number four. Agenda item number four is general public comment, an opportunity for members of the public to comment on any matter within the board's jurisdiction that is not on the agenda, including requesting the board place a matter on a future agenda item. This will be presented by President Scott. Thank you. Uh, this item is open for public comment at this time. I'll be reading the public comment procedures in, uh, aloud. In-person public comment will be first and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining. When your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266. Then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. 
When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue. Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. One caller specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. This is the same caller from the last public comment cycle. So just a reminder, if you are waiting to submit your public comment, please press star three to lower your hand or it will repeatedly show in the queue. A reminder to all other callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We'll wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. And moderator, I'll unmute this caller. Welcome caller. Oh, good afternoon, commissioners. This is Richard Rothman calling. I'm a retiree member in the health service system. Um, I'm in Kaiser, but I have an issue with my eye where I needed to see an ophthalmologist. And when I was seeing her, she wanted to see my eyeglass prescription, but she couldn't because it's not online. I called uh, VSP and they don't have uh, keep uh, eye records online. And so I had to call my eye doctor, have him fax it to me, then email it to her. You know, we should have an integrated system if VSP can't provide an integrated system, then we should go back to Kaiser. Because my eye doctor at Kaiser, my ophthalmologist, should be able to see what my prescription is and looking on her computer or have access to VSP. And if VSP can't provide online service, then it's time to go back to Kaiser. I can't see why the uh, eye doctors can't upload the prescriptions into the VSP database, because all VSP has in their database that I went to the doctor. So I hope when you negotiate the new contract for next year that you require them to put the prescriptions in a database accessible to doctors, if not then it's time to go back to Kaiser. And you need to improve the phone system. I called, got on uh, during open enrollment, got uh, to somebody's voicemail, and nobody ever called me back. And also, I believe Supervisor Chan is no longer on the Health Service Board. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. I'll unmute. I'll mute the, this current caller, and moderator can let us know if there's any further callers on the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have two callers on the phone line. Zero additional callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We'll wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. 
Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. We'll now proceed to item number five. Agenda item number five, approval with possible modifications of the minutes of the meeting set forth below. This is for the November 10th, 2022 Health Service Board regular meeting and was presented by President Scott. I'm willing to entertain a motion for the adoption or any comments or edits uh, of this item. I move to approve the November 10th, 2022 um, minutes as presented. Second. Okay, it's been properly moved and seconded. I have an edit that I'd like to insert. I believe it's on the, uh, uh, it's on item number seven as listed in the minutes. Uh, it says, President Scott commended the staff for their collective and individual work on open enrollment with their efforts compounding improvements each year like he benefits. I think I said, or if I didn't say it, I meant to say it, uh, with their continuing efforts and improvements each year like e-benefits. So I'd like to make that small edit. Thank you, President Scott, noted, yeah. Thank you. Uh, is there any other input from the board or edits or comments? If not, uh, we'll now have public comment on the minutes. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first, then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266, then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium, so we'll move on to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Okay, we are now ready to vote on this item by roll call vote. Roll call vote, starting with President Scott. Aye. With the edit. Okay. And Commissioner Breslin? Aye. Commissioner Canning? Aye. Commissioner Follinsby? Aye. And Commissioner Zavansky? Aye. Thank you. The motion carries unanimously. We'll now move to item number six. 
Item, agenda item number six is the president's report, and this will be presented by President Scott. Yes, I would like to call to the board's attention a very uh, detailed memo from the board secretary requesting our participation in the board self-evaluation survey, and it's due by December 21st. That's a few days before Christmas. So if you'd like to get it done immediately, that would be helpful uh, prior to the deadline date. And I am requesting that all board members plan to complete the survey. Uh, if not within the next few days, certainly by the 21st. Uh, that is my president's report. We'll now have public comment. In-person public comment will be first, and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length, unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be pleased back on mute, and the moderator unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266, then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now go to item number seven. Agenda item number seven is director's report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Abby Yant, SFHSS Executive Director. Good afternoon, commissioners. Abby Yant, Executive Director, San Francisco Health Service System. Um, I'll be brief today. The um, COVID pandemic is still with us. If you haven't gotten your booster, please do. Um, we are seeing an increase in the um, need to have masks on, et cetera, so I think that we should continue to be vigilant. Um, we hosted a mental health forum on Tuesday, uh, December 6th this week, um, and it was really quite extraordinary. We had our health plans uh, and their subject matter experts in behavioral health and uh, many of their contracted vendors that are also working in this space along with a number of key city department representatives to look at sort of current state, future state of the health, of the, of the mental health of our membership, um, as well as areas for improvement. We are 
compiling the findings from the forum. It was very rich. It was seven hours of pretty much continuous dialogue. And um, so we will be compiling those uh, that information and bringing uh, a full report to this board uh, currently slated for February of 2023. Um, <clears throat> so I personally look forward to just the um, uh, the analysis of what we heard and um, the process that we will use to formulate recommendations that will come before this board. Uh, but they're broad um, and a lot to do with, um, you know, not just seeking services, but how to maintain your mental health uh, in your current work environment. Um, and we had lots of good examples of how that can is done and how it can be done. So I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity before us. We continue to be um, very involved in discussions around uh, racial equity as it relates to uh, the provision of health care as well as the disparate um, health outcomes that uh, various groups uh, uh, experience. Um, and I did just learn earlier today that um, much earlier than anticipated, the Department of Managed Health Care has issued their recommendations. Um, and so I found the URL and that's as far as I've gotten <laughs> the documents lengthy um, so more to come but I it's very 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 helpful to have uh, their authority and their expertise in putting forth recommendations because these this uh, there's many questions it's very complex matter to address and it's very helpful to have this kind of information because many tables that have been discussing equity in healthcare um, the last couple of years have grappled with some very fundamental issues of definition and how we you know, talk about what conditions we talk about, what terms we talk about, how we slice the data, et cetera, et cetera. So DMHC has jump-started this discussion for us here in California. So that's uh, very helpful to know and we'll be pouring over that and bring you a summary at our January meeting. Um, we um, continue to experience personnel shortages in our department. So first and foremost, I really want to recognize all of our staff that is working like double, triple hard to uh, maintain our quality uh, services to our members. Uh, we are in conversation with the Department of Human Resources on how to get more personnel assistance and to hire because it's our volume is so high right now that one person can't um, can't handle it so we're working we're working on that and then a number of hopefully creative solutions to get through but we are experiencing delays in answering the calls um, and uh, that's not comfortable for us at all but it is the reality of where we're at today um, so we're continuing to address those issues as rapidly as we can. Um, the, in addition to that, I think most of us in the room uh, are aware of the payroll issues at the San Francisco Unified School District, which has a very significant um, impact on benefit enrollment for our members that are um, employed by the Unified School District or their dependents. And uh, they have declared a state of emergency. We are in touch with the new superintendent. Um, we are meeting with them weekly. We are together trying to sort of identify root cause where benefits are being dropped so that we can jump on that 
sooner rather than later. Uh, there are stories that, um, that are being talked about publicly about individuals that have found out they didn't have benefits when they went to seek services. Um, that's kind of the worst case scenario for us. Um, so we're working very diligently to figure out a way to know who these people are because the system is just messed up. Um, and so we're working very diligently, and, and so um, I've been in conversation um, not just with the superintendent, the mayor's office, education liaison is also very interested, um, and we're trying to encourage, and I'm saying this publicly, we're encouraging anyone who has an issue to please call us um, because talking to your friend about it isn't going to fix it. Um, we can fix it. So I've made that exceedingly clear uh, to people um, here at City Hall. And um, so it's it's very, very helpful if we're made aware of these in problems, because we can fix it. But if we don't know that it, ha it has happened, uh, we can't fix it. May I ask a question about this? Has this uh, been a development over the last month or two, or? It's been going on since May. Um, they put in a new payroll system, and they've really struggled with the implementation. Uh, and it just we've uh, we've been aware and have been working with them, but some of the it's, it's the data that we don't see that is the problem. You know, if if we were if we had if there's if their new system communicated better with the existing systems that uh, we uh, we depend on. Um, which is the way it used to be, uh, with this would not be an issue. But there, I, I'm not the techie, um, and I, I wouldn't want to put my staff in the position of having to explain the problems at USD, uh, but we are grappling with the impact of it. And, and in your context to date, or your contact with them, have you come up with either a joint plan of how you're going to try to address this going forward, or? We're meeting with them weekly. Because the plan is 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 constantly changing as we learn more. Okay, thank you. Yeah, if there was a simple solution, it it would be done. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Can I just add one? This is Commissioner Fonsby. Um, you, you know, I've been aware of the public uh, comment on all this. I guess the question is, when a, when a, an employee finds out that they don't have coverage, um, are they able to get care? Um, emergently or urgently or with retroactive coverage? Um, what's happened to these people who find out they don't have, supposedly don't have coverage? Well, first of all, certainly in an emergency, um, all the EMTALA laws yeah. cover people to get covered. So that's important. Uh, but there are delays in care. Uh, theoretically, there's delays in care that can occur when one doesn't present with a, a current um, insurance, doesn't show up in their systems as, as currently being enrolled. Um, and that is why we're encouraging people to call us directly, because we can rather expeditiously correct that. The plans have been super helpful and responsive. Um, and so we, the, the problem is not knowing exactly who is exp having this problem because of the failure to um, deliver their information to us. Because you can imagine when we have tens of thousands of people in, in these files, it's hard to know if there's who's missing. Well, I, just as an additional comment, I guess the other compounding factor out of this is that some people may be seeking care and getting care on an urgent basis, but we also know there's also uh, sometimes bills that are sent to people and 
so on and so on. So I'm trying to figure out, are we looking at just this issue person by person or trying to put together some longer or more expanded uh, response on our part? You know, how we're going to follow up? Are there any common uh, yeah, uh, issues? That it, type of thing? Very good questions and ones that we're working through with the school district. I mean, they're in control of most of this information. And so we have to work with them to help them understand what we need and look at the systems that are there to adopt that information. We, we, don't, we don't see you know, thousands of people being impacted at this point. What, what we do know are you know, a couple hundred. Mm. Um, and so we're trying to develop systems that expeditiously push people through the system once we are able to flag who they are. Um, and so we're, we are working diligently to do that. As far as uh, dealing with bills, um, uh, our plans are super helpful uh, with us with doing any kind of uh, billing corrections that need to be made on an individual basis because they, do, they don't often happen, but they do happen from time to time uh, in the normal course of business. And so that they're very capable and, and responsive for that. So I think once we know where the problem is, we're able to take steps to correct it. Our problem is, is there's just a, a lack of clarity on that. And that's a highly technical question that I won't try to answer. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I think you're going to hear a lot from our whole ops team uh, shortly, and um, and uh, the, so I will leave it at that for today. Thank you. Are there any questions? Uh, on the uh, personnel and staffing, I'd like to uh, thank those folks who are retiring from the system, from our offices, and wish them well in their future. Uh, but as we look at these vacancies, are, is there a broader issue? I know that everybody is having problems recruiting in every category that you want to look at. But uh, have we uh, also, uh, in parallel, taken a look at either the compensation structure for some of these positions, um, whether they are currently classified, competitively that type of thing mm -hmm. can you comment on that yeah yeah the whole 1200 series of which we have several uh, classifications that are very um, active in our in a core part of our staff um, uh, is used by a number of other city departments and so we have had a conversation with the compensation division of the Department of Human Resources to do an analysis of these positions um, uh, to be sure that we're all um, a using the right classifications which I don't think there's a, a, a real serious question about that, but we do want to make sure because I'm only I, I'm personally only familiar with a couple of the classes that we use, but I do know other departments um, have uh, opportunities in that series or in other series that um, are promotional opportunities uh, for our staff. And so I think you know this is kind of the, the the good news. Bad news is that you know we have very competent staff that have, are, are taking advantage of these openings in other departments that are indeed a promotion. Um, and so it, it's so it's hard to tell. But anyway, compensation is working with us to do that analysis so that we have a, a, a good sense of of where those issues are. The other thing that's being worked on, um, and it's even uh, more comp more challenging, but the Director of Human Resources, Carol Eisen, um, is very clear that there's 
um, significant barriers within the civil service system itself. And so she has outlined a, um, a number of uh, initiatives that require civil service commission um, approval in order to enhance the um, hiring process. All right, thank you. Are there other questions from members of the board regarding? Yeah, this is Commissioner Follinsby. Yeah. I just want to make actually one or two comments. One is I attended this morning a webinar on the crisis on healthcare personnel um, sponsored by the New England Journal of Medicine um, uh, group. And um, th they ignored our staff and they ignored the administrative staff, the people who actually interface the clients. And so I really, uh, my question really has to do with the, I know that you reported a month ago on an offsite uh, that sounded like it was quite a good um, experience for the health service system staff and morale. But could you comment again on how the morale is going right before the holidays in the face of all this stress? Well, we are having a holiday party next Thursday uh, that uh, the, the um, leadership team has uh, put together for our staff. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't want to sound like I'm just being, uh, you know, falsely uh, indicating. I, our staff is working very hard, um, and I think they do appreciate um, acknowledgement of that. Um, and they're pretty dedicated and uh, want to do the right thing. And it's a uh, it's a it's a challenge, you know, to be able to keep up with the work and, you know, realize that you've got people waiting in the call queue and you've got real problems that you really want to work on and solve. And it's 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 a very difficult time that we're going through. So um, I but I think that we're hanging in there um, and, um, you know, we continue just to support each other. Um, as best we can during this challenging time. Thank you. I just want to add my um, really appreciation and admiration for all of your staff, um, not only in times when there's not a crisis, but during these times when there is a, a crisis. And I consider this a crisis in terms of staffing. Um, and we're not talking about you know, the, the people we talk about in the often emergency rooms, first responders, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, mental health, but, but the staff of HSS really play a critical role in the healthcare system. And so I want to add my, my appreciation for all that they do and will continue to do and hope that we can get um, some resolution to this. It does sort of lead into my next comment, which would be um, a remiss of me not to make a comment about COVID um, as the physician on the board. And just to uh, congratulate our, par our health plan partners, I was impressed with the statistics for the number of our members who we know have gotten not only the primary um, um, course of, of vaccination, but also at least one booster shot. And I would just like to remind everyone, including all of our, our clients, our members, um, that um, there, you know, a full course of boosting would be three doses. Um, and if someone has not been boosted in the last five months, I would recommend that they seek uh, another booster uh, dose. Uh, again, we're entering holidays. Um, and um, these, despite a lot of what we hear about, you know, sort of escape mutants and all that of this virus, um, and some of the therapies being pulled off the market, A, there are still therapies available that are oral and can be taken in a short course for COVID. And number two, um, the, 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 the boosters, including the new bivalent booster, do work to um, at least help modify and minimize the symptoms 
um, and particularly as we all contemplate gathering with family, friends, at parties, et cetera, I would recommend that we um, consider reinforcing messaging about testing and, and also self-screening. And that means I've had several friends who were exposed to COVID over Thanksgiving because people who were at tennis with complained only of a sore throat and didn't think that that could be COVID. And it was, but they didn't know it because they didn't test themselves. And so my husband and I test ourselves before any major gathering, even if we're asymptomatic, and we would not go to a gathering because we have you know, friends and family who are even more vulnerable than we are. So I would su really suggest that, that we redouble our messaging about not only vaccination and boosting, but also testing recommendations and also seeking care early if one develops symptoms. Not only are there treatment for, for COVID, as we know, but there's treatment for influenza. And so I think that probably our adherence to influenza vaccine is pretty good as well. Uh, and I appreciate the staff and the collaboration that HSS has done getting our members vaccinated against influenza, but there are also treatments for influenza. Unfortunately, for the third component of this current respiratory virus um, pandemic, epidemic, the RSV, there is no treatment nor vaccine. And so again, vigilance and protection, including masking and protecting themselves, ourselves, from, um, uh, but also others for um, sort of frequent testing and monitoring of our own health is really important. So again, I thank everyone, including our health plan partners for their collaboration in this ongoing effort. Thank you, Dr. Follinsby. Are there any other? Yes, Commissioner Savansky. Um, thank you. Um, I also want to thank our staff. Um, I noticed that they did an incredible job during um, open enrollment, given the staff shortage. I think it's rather phenomenal, and they should be uh, commended for it. Um, some of the work that I used to do when I worked for the city involved personnel and classifications. And I've often looked at our classifications and think that they're probably correct, unless we did something that created a unique class um, of benefits specialists that um, would be unique to the health service system and the specific kind of um, benefits work that we do there as opposed to the work that's done um, in other departments with the same classifications. Um, but I'm glad you're talking to Carol Eisen about it because I think she, that's where the discussion um, should be had. And I don't know if creating a special classification would make it more difficult to recruit um, or easier to recruit a specific kind um, of specialist or um, staff person for those jobs. But I think we do have to look at them um, and to do whatever we can do. I'm glad to see um, that there are opportunities for promotion from within because I think that's always very helpful. Um, but what I'm noticing, um, because I get the retiree lists from the retirement system, is we have an inordinate number of um, personnel that are retiring from the city, many of them taking vested retirements and not service retirements. But we have many, many people um, who are leaving city service. And what I'm hearing is that that's an issue in many industries. So I don't know that we're unique. Um, and I know other 
um, cities in the Bay Area are experiencing the same problems. So we're just going to have to figure out how to deal with it going forward and give as much support as we can um, to the staff who remain and also to try to, um, I guess, appeal to our members to be patient and um, to help us help themselves as much as possible. Um, I was impressed with the e-benefits um, options, and I'm hoping that that's working for a number of people. But I just want to commend our staff on the job they're doing and hope that we can go forward um, to get the best, because I think we have the best people in the jobs that we have, and I hope we can keep as many of them as possible and recruit more. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Zawatsky. Are there any other board comments on this item? If not, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first, and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266. Then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now go to item eight. Agenda item number eight, SFHSS financial report as of October 31st, 2022. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSF Chief Financial Officer. Good afternoon. Um, so I'll just quickly go through the highlights uh, of the October financials. Um, so our trust fund is about 14.7 um, million ahead um, of uh, our plan target really because of the settlement uh, that we received. And this settlement, as we had discussed at the last meeting, will be used in the rate setting process for plan year uh, 2024, um, because 2023 is already been said. Uh, as far as claims are concerned, we are uh, the claims are running close to target. There is 
However, higher claims on the medical side and lower claims on the, on the dental side, but in total, they are uh, close to plan. Uh, we did start receiving pharmacy rebates. Uh, we got uh, $4 million in October, uh, and we're on track for about $13 million for the year. Um, the Health Sustainability Fund, we are expecting to end the year at $2.7 million, which is uh, pretty healthy. And on the general fund, because of the vacancies that we've discussed earlier, we are running about 600000 ahead. We... Uh, and as those vacancies get filled, um, uh, we the um, uh, will end up um, closer to budget as we fill those vacancies. Um, so those are happy to answer any questions on the financials. Are there any questions or a chief financial officer? I hear none. I just would like to thank you for the clarity, brevity, and uh, comprehensiveness of your report. Thank you. And with that, uh, we'll open it up for public comment. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first, and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length, unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266, then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium. We'll move to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now proceed to item nine, open enrollment report. Agenda item number nine is the report on open enrollment activities for the plan year 2023. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Ray Gian, SFHSF Chief Financial Officer. Officer. I would like to commend the Chief Operating Officer for his robust presence here today after <laughs> going through open enrollment. Good afternoon. Thank you. Ray Gian, Chief Operating Officer for the San Francisco Health Service System. Today, select members of the HSS management team and I will walk you through a report that reviews the activities and outcomes from the open enrollment period for plan year 2023. Next slide. 
I'll start with a reminder of the reasons that we have an annual open enrollment period and review the membership that we serve. I'll also be presenting a summary of the highlights from this year's open enrollment. I'll then turn it over to Brian Rodriguez, our project manager, who will then review the open enrollment project plan with you, which helped ensure no important steps were overlooked. Jessica She, our communications director, will run through our open enrollment communications strategy. Our enterprise systems and analytics director, Rin Coleridge, will then discuss the system updates that were needed this year. Since our operations manager, Olga stavinskaya Velasquez couldn't be here with us today, I'll step back in and discuss the assistance that was provided to our members. I'll then review how well we accomplished some of the key initiatives established for this year's open enrollment. And then I'll kick it over to Carrie Bashirs, our well-being manager, who will provide a report on this year's health fair and flu clinics before I finish up with the open enrollment results. Next slide. So open enrollment is a one time a year that our members can change um, their selected benefit coverages. It's also the time of the year which they can add or drop a dependent from their health coverage without a qualifying event, such as a marriage or a birth of a child. If members don't submit any changes during the open enrollment period, a member's previous elections simply roll over into the next plan year with the exception of health flexible spending accounts, um, which the IRS requires members to re-elect every year. This year, open enrollment ran from Monday, October 3rd through Monday, October 31st, with changes becoming effective January 1st, 2023. Next slide. As a reminder, we provide benefits coverage to slightly over 77,000 members along with their covered dependents. Currently, 43% are employees of the city and county of San Francisco, 45% are retirees, 10% are school district staff, and the remainder include employees of the Superior Court and City College. Next slide. This page highlights a few of the items we wanted to bring to your attention at the beginning of this presentation. One issue, as um, Executive Director Yant mentioned earlier, is that we are facing a staffing challenge. Both leading up to and throughout the month of, uh, month of October, over one out of three of our HSS positions was vacant. This not only affected member services, where we lost several of our long-term employees as they promoted to positions with other departments within the city, but also in key areas such as our communications team. Despite these vacancies, we did make some significant progress towards some of the key initiatives that were set for this year. First, we achieved a significant reduction in the number of paper enrollment um, applications that were received as we continue to promote online enrollment. Second, our effort to transition 667 split Medicare families from Blue Shield to United Healthcare was tremendously successful. Despite our staffing challenges, we still managed to answer over 7,000 member calls during the month of October, which is twice the amount we normally receive in a non-open enrollment month. And during last year's open enrollment in the middle of the pandemic, we introduced a new health plan offering, HealthNet Canopy Care. Probably not surprising, um, the enrollment target um, that both SFHSS and our HealthNet Canopy Care partner were expecting was not reached. During this year's open enrollment planning process, 
Our staff took all available steps that could identify to educate members about the Health Net Canopy Care Plan and also offer Health Net opportunities to build member awareness of their plan. As a result of these combined efforts, we saw a 97% increase in the number of enrolled lives into the Health Net Canopy Care Plan for 2023. We were also excited to reintroduce in-person health fairs this year, which had to be suspended the last couple of years due to the COVID pandemic. Next slide. So at this point in time, I'd like to introduce Brian Rodriguez, who will walk you through the open enrollment project plan. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, Brian Rodriguez, the project manager, and as well as the information systems administrator and primary, <clears throat> excuse me, IT support for HSS. So you probably know me in that role as well. Um, but for our open enrollment uh, project team, it's made up of representatives from every department of HSS uh, working together. And you can see here, uh, numbers-wise, we have a few folks from each group uh, on the team. We coordinate everything from the rates to communications, data analysis, contracts, well-being, and anything that our members may need during this month of open enrollment. Uh, many of us meet weekly uh, to check in and also are in constant contact using our digital tools to ensure that um, rates, communications, events, flu clinics, webinars, and the materials we provide um, to our members and need to, uh, need to understand to use their benefits are uh, always up to date. I do my best to keep the schedule, notes, and everything else uh, shared in one place so that we can uh, uh, have a look. Anybody can see them whenever they're needed. Um, and also, uh, you'll notice in one of the uh, uh, listings there, we do include the flu clinics and webinars um, in our open enrollment project plan um, because they are critical during this time, not only for the, um, for the, the flu vaccinations, but also for the benefit fairs that we're able to reintroduce this year. Um, and then you'll also see that we included um, a separate line item for our UHC health plans this year as we were going through that um, rollout as well for those two new plans. Uh, next slide. And then for uh, open enrollment in general, it is a massive undertaking for uh, each of us here at HSS. Uh, personally, this is my seventh year uh, project managing open enrollment for HSS. Um, and it's been different every year, um, which actually is rather exciting. Um, I dare, dare I say I like the challenge. Um, and so as a project manager, I like to keep the 10,000 foot level of what's going on for open enrollment, um, but I don't take any problem with having to get into the weeds and see what's really going on down, down in, in the, the details. Um, and as you can probably see, I'm a very visual person, so um, what, you'll, what you're seeing are uh, snapshots of the schedule and project plan that are put out. And each group within HSS is assigned a specific color um, in the project plan so they can look at their tasks specifically and also see um, you know, what tasks may be uh, being done by other folks within the various groups. And then uh, building on what is learned from the, from the open enrollment team, uh, tasks are removed and added all the time, uh, year over year. Um, to make sure that everybody understands what needs to be done. Um, and then we not only work internally within HSS, but we also rely um, and have external dependencies very, on the various employers, the controller's office, DHR, USD, CCD. So it's quite a juggling act at time. Um, and then for me personally, the, the open enrollment project um, really never ends. Um, the, the open enrollment for the next benefit year, so for right now for 
plan year 2024 has already begun. I started working on that last month. Um, so it is an ongoing process. And, um, and it's uh, never quiet, but it's always interesting. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, communications and the communications director, Jessica Shee. Thank you so much, Brian. My name is Jessica Shee, communications director for the San Francisco Health Service System. And so many of you may know that our members still struggle to understand differences between our health benefits and plans. So to address some of these, to address their needs, we actually developed five objectives to meet their goal. And we utilize a multimodal communication strategy with a mix of print, email, and online tools. So you see our first objective is to always educate members about the benefits. We also want to reduce any unnecessary calls to member services to free up time for them to deliver deeper and better service. We want to increase benefit elections to e-benefits and decrease paper applications. And this year, we also wanted to preemptively address member concerns over the uh, UHC split family change for their non-Medicare members from a Blue Shield HMO plan to a United Healthcare EPO plan. And finally, we also wanted to continue to increase our awareness of our newest HMO plan, HealthNet Canopy Care. And you'll see on the right-hand side, we're always trying to shepherd our members along to make their benefit elections on this sort of journey and path. Next slide. And I hope our commissioners who are retirees or active employees were all able to receive their packets this year. We sent out almost 76,000 packets, um, about 1,000 more, no, oh yes about a thousand, oh no, a couple hundred less than last year. Sorry, my glasses. Um, each year we make sure that the packets are sort of, you'll see it has an eye-catching envelope. We really want our members to open it and review their benefits. And this is where we also provide um, additional information if they want to attend our webinars and how to get that information online. Thank you. One of our tactics is to send out weekly open enrollment emails. This year we distributed one every week starting the week prior to open enrollment. So that's about six weekly emails. Every week we had a call to action and because we, we know our members are in di different points on their journey and path to making their benefit elections. So we always promote our health plan partners office hours, our vendor microsites, webinars, and our, of course, our own open enrollment page. And you'll see the image of one of our emails. Um, the, it's sort of a heat map, and the bigger the circle means that that's where our members have been clicking on. And that just so happens to be our open enrollment, dedicated open enrollment webpage. And the chart below sort of shows you the spikes in, um, on that webpage, which coincide with when we send out and distribute those emails. Can you help me with a uh, clarification? What is a bounce rate? <laughs> you know, we had to look that up ourselves. Thank you so much for asking. Bounce rate is when a member um, comes to the page and then leaves from that page. So they don't stay or search. They just 
check yes. it and they might have done it inadvertently. Is that what you're Yeah. So for example, if they came to our open enrollment page and they're like, oh yes, I want to schedule an office hour with one of our health plans, well then they left our site and they've gone to our vendor site. All right. Thank you. Thank you for asking. How to keep that definition there on my notes. <laughs> And if you recall, one of our objectives was to increase e-benefits utilization. So this year we actually updated our e-benefits page, which is hss.org forward slash e-benefits. With um, last year, we actually had weekly dedicated webinars um, to explain how to navigate e-benefits, how to register for an account with e-benefits, because we actually, last year was the first year where every single employer group and retirees all had access to e-benefits, so it was very exciting. This year we took that webinar that we've already created and put, posted that onto our web page, and we actually saw a 69% increase of that page from last year. Thank you. This year we did things slightly differently. So you'll recall we, we always want to reduce the unnecessary calls to member services because sometimes members need more detailed information. Maybe they want plan-specific information. So all of our health plan vendors were gracious to offer us one-on-one um, -on -one consultations and office hours for our members. And you'll see on this chart just how many office hours were completed for each of our health plans. And we also had 17 vendor-hosted Webinars, we did things a little different this year. Last year, we combined the webinars, combined the vendors. This year, we decided that each vendor would have the opportunity and the time to go more in-depth with their benefits. Thank you. And of course, one of our objectives was to educate members about the split family transition from Blue Shield HMO plans to United Healthcare EPO plans. And to do that, we actually wanted to make sure so as to not to overwhelm our um, short staff member services. We mailed out postcards three weeks in advance of open enrollment to inform members about this change, to inform impacted members. We followed that up about a week and a half later with uh, email to remind them. And at that point, we also had access to our United Healthcare microsite that had even more information because what we learned from the prior year when we uh, introduced the new PPO plan was that our members really wanted to know if their doctor was in network. So with that access to the microsite, they could do the doctor search. And finally, United Healthcare made sure to reach out to all of our members via telephone to follow up and see if they had any questions. And of course, one of our final objectives was to continue to create awareness for a HealthNet Canopy Care Plan. And in order to accomplish this, we also developed a, um, actually HealthNet developed a postcard that we distributed to approximately 5,000 of our early retirees to make sure that they knew. We thought this would be really important because this year, HealthNet HMO plan was actually very competitively priced. And we thought that our early retirees were especially appreciate that. We also had, um, leading up to open enrollment, we made sure we had HealthNet stories that were prominently featured in our e-news newsletters and our weekly open enrollment emails. We had four dedicated HealthNet Canopy Care HMO webinars so that members would have the opportunity at various times to be able to learn about those benefits and what makes them different. And we also um, 
invited HealthNet Canopy Care team to three additional flu clinics to gain more exposure to our membership. And now I'd like to introduce you to Rin Coleridge, our Enterprises, Enterprise Systems and Analytics Director. Commissioners, good afternoon. Such a pleasure to see you all. Rin Coleridge, Director, Enterprise Systems and Analytics. Uh, here to talk to you a little bit about the contributions from the ESA team. Um, we definitely do the foundational work to ensure all of our key information technology systems and data is ready to go to support that successful open enrollment. Now, you know we wanted to eliminate the complexity from the split carrier um, enrollment. Those are the split Medicare families, but we've got them on multiple carriers. And so um, you approved the implementation of those two new EPO plans to help us um, with more seamless benefit administration. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean everything's easy. Implementing new plans actually takes a lot of effort. Um, and so uh, to, to in introduce those two plans, we actually had to, in the system, configure four new benefit plans and associate those with all of our benefit programs. The, I think there's somewhere between 30 and 40 of those. Um, also, we had to modify or create new a number of interface files. So, of course, there's those 834 uh, HIPAA eligibility files that go over to the carriers. We have um, deduction files and the like with um, the uh, uh, other employers, the pension systems. Payment files get impacted. We want to make sure uh, the money's moving appropriately. Uh, and uh, to do that also, we needed new deduction codes. And then um, we absolutely wanted to make sure this was a seamless experience for our members. So to do that, we pre-enrolled um, these split family members into the plan that they um, aligned to. And it uh, sounds easy, but it's not. <laughs> really had to dig around in the system and figure out which dependent goes where, and then to, to write the scripts for that. So, uh, And then um, there's also the part where we had to um, eliminate plan, um, plans in our system. Not that the plans were eliminated. We still have Access Plus and Trio. But to make sure no, no one could um, still enroll in that mixed carrier combination. So we have to undo all those other things. So that was net new work on our PeopleSoft benefits administration side. And then you take that, and then there's all the usual activities that we have to do, um, modifying all the benefit admin components to roll into the new plan year. So some of those types of things are adding in all the rates for your medical, your dental, your life, LTDs, Flex credits, COBRA, updating your FSA amounts. Those zip code tables are very important to the service areas and the geographic eligibility rules that happen in the system. Um, also, um, updating uh, tax text descriptions of those plans, the correct uh, URL um, web links for people who were linking on, on items. And then we still, uh, in addition to um, all of the changes that you all approved, we had MOU changes that went into effect January 1, and so we had to make sure all of those were, were configured. So uh, that kept us very busy. But PeopleSoft, next slide, please, Brian, is not our only key system. Uh, we have another a number of other key systems. We have um, our enterprise content management system, what we call our ECM. And uh, I think you know that's really like our, our digital member files. But we do a lot of routing and workflow activities based on incoming documents. And so we needed to update various um, 
routing rules. And uh, that picture on the top right, that's sort of a look at that, that workflow chart where we go in and do that configuration to give you an idea of some of the complexity there. Um, also, we have a daily process. So now that we have eBenefits and our members can upload their supporting documentation there, we run a nightly batch job to get that moved over to our system so that uh, members supporting documentation can end up in their digital file folder. Um, we were monitoring that every single day, making sure with the increased volume that there weren't any issues. And you may or may not have heard that uh, I think around the 20th of October there was a few hours system outage. And so um, we were impacted by that, but nothing too uh, dramatic. We actually learned a few things from it, which was nice, but it did mean that we we were making sure nothing got missed, so we literally went through and just re-uploaded <laughs> uh, re every single document for the entire month, because we're rather safe than sorry. But So, the, you know, there's a lot of monitoring activities that happen. Um, our website is critical to us, so we were assisting with some uh, website updates and also resolving uh, last-minute technical issues. Those detailed rate calculations that are um, rates for, you see the simple rates that get presented to you by our Aon team, but we have to take that and um, split out all the allocations and the different components of who gets paid where by each of those benefit plans. So it's probably something like 40 data points and over 4,000 of these detail rates. It's a, a very heavy lift to get all those done. Salesforce, you may know, is another key system that we use. Um, we use that for our case management when our members contact us so we can ensure we're tracking issues and following up and escalating as necessary. So we um, worked on some additional uh, modifications in that system to match um, some of the, the workflow requests coming out of our member services area so that they could manage that incoming work. And then there's a, a number of work streams we have around eBenefits. Um, my team is able to reset passwords, but only for the retiree population. So during the month, we were staying up on that and making sure we took care of our retirees. Um, it was, you've already heard from others about our vacancy rate, so it was an all-hands-on-deck kind of month. And so we also assisted with virtual consultations with our members, helping them navigate e-benefits. And um, e-benefits itself, even though it's a layer on top of PeopleSoft, it's its own separate system. It has its own separate work effort. So we had to go through pre-open enrollment and having everything ready, a whole testing cycle and some modifications because of the EPO plans. And at this point, I do want to just give a, a quick little shout out to some of our partner departments. Um, we work very closely with the systems division of the controller's office, so some of these system changes that we have to do with PeopleSoft. Likewise, they have a employee portal support help desk there. And so during the month of October, some of our members are not able to log into the system or just unclear on what to do. So, uh, most of those calls come into HSS, but also um, our colleagues at the employee portal help desk, as well as the Department of Technology help desk, are also seeing increased call volumes at this time to their help desk. So we, we thank them for their partnership in helping our members. And um, Finally, it's also a, a huge data stream. You heard from Jessica just a moment ago about all that targeted communication we had to, to fit our objectives. And so we have to make sure we're providing the right data and the right layout to support all those targeted communications. And so um, here's just a look in these bullet points, some of those groups that we were trying to, trying to um, target messaging to the non-Medicare retirees. Of course, the split Medicare group, non-USA residents, waived members. We, ahead of time, look at our data and provide 
test cases to our print vendor, so we make sure all of that is, is um, looking correct before it actually drops into the mail. Um, months ahead of time, we're also modifying the main data program we use to extract data um, for uh, the OE letters. Um, and we also, ahead of time, are sending our print vendor, vendor ENCOA files, ENCOA being the National Change of Address. Unfortunately, members do not always update their address with HSS. This is my plea to members to please do so. Um, however, um, we want to make sure that that communication is getting to the members, so we take on that additional effort. We get these ENCOA files back that shows anybody who's filed a change of address with the post office, and we're doing the work to get that updated in our system prior to pulling the data that goes to for those letters. Uh, we created data files for 22 OE letter segments and nine OE confirmation letter segments. That requires a lot of data manipulation. That little screenshot on the bottom left there is after we pull the data out of the system, we run it into a database and we're running there about 40 seems to be my magic number today, but we do run about 40 different queries that we've written on that data to manipulate it and, and add elements that are needed and get in the right layout for where it's going and who it needs to get to. So that's just a view of the tremendous amount of work that happens in ESA, and I thank my team for um, their excellent work. And at this point, I'd like to turn it back to Ray Gian. Again, Ray Gian, Chief Operating Officer. Um, since our member services manager, Olga Stavinskaya Velasquez, is taking a couple of well-deserved days off, I'll be stepping in for her and reviewing the efforts of our member services team. So this slide summarizes the activities taken by HSS members during the month of October. And so we had 2,972 members change their medical plan, 1,793 members changed their dental plan, 1,154 members added dependents while 600, um, to their medical plan, while 663 dropped their dependents from medical. On the dental side, 922 members added dependents and 554 dropped dependents. And as a reminder, every year the IRS requires members to re-enroll re in flexible spending accounts, both medical and dependent care. During open enrollment, 7,368 members enrolled in the medical FSA for 2023 and 1,503 members enrolled into the dependent care FSA. As I mentioned earlier, 7,381 uh, calls came into our member services call center. This is actually a 22% reduction in the number from last year. This reduction was partly due to the fact that we didn't have any major plan changes that impacted a large portion of our members outside the Medicare split family transition. But it was also, we believe, due to efforts of our communications team to proactively educate our members and reduce their need to call us. Next slide. With this slide, we are introducing a new member services dashboard, which we plan to utilize going forward to report metrics related to member interaction with our call center, and which we plan to build on in the future to include certain metrics related to optimizing efficiencies within member services that were included as part of the new three-year strategic plan, such as customer service satisfaction. Related to the month of October 2022, member services handled over 7,000 calls. The average amount of time a member waited in the call queue before a live member services staff answered was approximately eight and a half minutes for both active and retiree populations. And then although this is significantly higher than we would like, considering that we had 
on average, seven of our 23 member service positions vacant during that period. Um, and also normal member staff absences. I consider this as a uh, quite an accomplishment of the remaining staff. Staff also conducted 340 virtual consultations or appointments that pulled, um, further pulled them off the phones during those appointment times. Although we weren't open to regular in-person appointments, uh, we did help and assist any member that showed up at, at our door. So they were not turned away. Um, someone went out and made sure that we provided assistance to them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Can you pause for just a moment on yes. call metrics? Uh, do you have some sort of uh, benchmark that you're going to use going forward? You've introduced the metric, but are you comparing it to our work call volume, call center data, I, just any type of benchmark? Yeah, so going forward, we're gonna compare the, the call top call reasons as they come in to what we were expecting. Um, as we go forward, we're gonna further um, train staff on how to specifically outline the reasons for the call. Right now, those call um, drivers are very broad in, in, in categories. And so you'll see the vast majority of um, calls that came in during the month of October were just listed as open enrollment inquiries. Um, some of those calls, the next greatest group of calls that came in was eligibility. Um, some were just listed as a retiree calls, and some of these would overlap with one another. And so as we go forward, we look to further differentiate what the call reasons were. That way we can do some of those comparisons that you're talking about. Right now, it's pretty um, broad, and we're not able to gather a whole lot of data from um, the information that we have. Um, as a further example, you'll see down below, we do have um, calls related um, that mentioned UHC, but we're not clear as to whether or not those calls were related to just the UHC plans in general, or some of those calls were obviously related to the split family transition, but staff did not have a way to identify which were which, and so those were things that we would hope to capture further in the years to come. And with the call metrics of, of wait times, are you using some sort of external benchmark around that? So uh, what I will say, the call wait time is a lot higher than we would like. Um, there is, again, there is no industry standard in terms of um, an employee call center um, for employee benefit issues, but we do look and compare ourselves to targets that some of our carrier partners are able to achieve. Um, for this year, we are significantly off the mark from some of those call centers of Blue Shield or UHC, um, which um, oftentimes are measured in seconds instead of minutes. And so we certainly have a way to go, um, especially in, a, in situations where we're down staff, but we do um, really want to work towards significantly reducing that call time. Well, I, I would ask you to do some research on that uh, regarding external benchmarks uh, for a customer service center, and you, whether it's healthcare or uh, other industries, because I, I think that I have seen in other settings uh, those types of benchmarks, and we may want to, over time, say this is where we are. We're not going to get down to seconds immediately, but we want to reduce the number of minutes, and I recognize that's going to be staff-related as well. So it's just a, an observation. 
Thank you. We'll look into that. Next slide. So as you can see here, the number of calls and transactions increased dramatically each week as those open enrollment emails um, that our communications team sent out. Also, the calls and transactions spiked at the end of the, uh, as the end of the open enrollment period drew closer. We're looking at this data to see if there's possible ways that we can make changes in the way we schedule open enrollment that might better distribute both the number of calls and transactions over um, more evenly over the open enrollment period. You would have to intervene on human behavior. Everyone waits to the last minute. Yeah, and so uh, again, we want to get creative here. Um, again, there is no dictate, it's not dictated how long an open enrollment period needs to be. And so as we see here, you know, we have open enrollment over the month of October. The one thing we are looking at is, would it make sense to have shorter open enrollment periods, but break it up by segment. So maybe we do a two-week open enrollment period for active employees, maybe a two-week open enrollment period for retirees. That way we can spread that call volume over a much shorter period of time, and so even those out a little bit more. And so we are definitely gonna look at, you know, kind of these metrics to see if there's a better way to handle it, because doesn't this really no good to have a very long open enrollment period if everyone's gonna to wait to the last minute? Next slide. So this chart overlays the total number of calls received each day of October over the average number of calls handled by each staff member in attendance that particular day. So on the slow days, this equated to an average of 17 call per, calls per staff member on days like the 13th and up to 40 calls per staff member on October 31st. As I mentioned, calls did spike towards the very end of um, open enrollment. And um, again, we, as we talked about, you know, staff appreciation and um, uh, satisfaction with the job, we did want to celebrate staff's effort. And so on October 31st, Halloween, for, during that lunch hour, we did celebrate with a pizza party for staff um, that was contributed by um, Executive Director Ant. Um, CFO um, Iftikhar Hussein and myself. So we are trying to make sure that we maintain um, some uh, staff positivity during even those very busy days. Next slide. Next, I'm going to provide a summary of how well we achieved some of the key initiatives set for this year's open enrollment. The first initiative that we wanted to review is the transition to online enrollment via e-benefits. Completing changes via e-benefits is much more efficient and accurate. And as you can see here, the vast majority of enrollments are now submitted via e-benefits, including those from retirees. Of the, 16, of the 1,605 retirees who submitted open enrollment changes this year, almost 73% of those retirees utilized e-benefits. However, if a retiree preferred to submit their elections via paper, we were happy to provide um, that paper form to them and provide instructions on how to submit it. Next slide. This chart here just displays the transition from paper to e-benefits open enrollment over time. As you can see, um, this year, in, of all the transactions submitted, we only had 661 paper applications that we needed to process this year. 
um, with the systems that we currently have in place, we'll never get rid of um, paper applications completely. And this is because PeopleSoft can only hold one transaction in the system at any one point in time. And so if someone has came on during the month of October as a new employee, that new employee event is gonna hold that um, transaction in PeopleSoft so that they would not be able to log in and submit an open enrollment change for the following year. And so unfortunately, those members would need to fill out that paper application, and then we'll process those transactions in order. And so there is still some need for paper applications, but we do um, hope to reduce that significantly uh, as we continue on. This graph shows the result of the split Medicare family transition. And as, as Rin mentioned earlier, um, this board approved staff's recommendation to transition the non-Medicare members who are part of a split Medicare family with at least one family member enrolled in our United Healthcare Medicare Advantage PPO plan and at least one non-Medicare family member in one of our Blue Shield HMOs plans. Um, to United Healthcare plans, including two new exclusive provider organization plans, UHC Select Network EPO and the Narrow Network UHC Doctors EPO. The reason for this action was to reduce the complexity of managing families sp split between two different providers. This chart displays the result of the transition. On this slide, we not only displayed uh, the HMO plans, but the UHC non-Medicare PPO plan that our non-Kaiser split families currently have access to. This is because some of the existing split families chose to enroll in this, non, uh, in this PPO plan rather than transition to one of the new EPO plans. So for the non-Medicare split family members, we started with 418 enrolled in the Blue Shield Access Plus plan, 266 enrolled in the Blue Shield Trio plan, and 212 enrolled in the UHC PPO. For 2023, 408 members moved to the UHC Select EPO, 214 moved to the UHC Doctors Plan, and the UHC PPO membership grew to 268 members. Don't worry, you'll see there that there's um, 890 um, members um, for 2023 and 896 members currently. We didn't lose six members. Two members did move to Kaiser, um, two waived their medical coverage, one dropped their Medicare dependent, and then one of those members aged into Medicare, and so they're no longer a split family. So we made sure we didn't lose anyone in the transition. This last slide shows the increase in the health net canopy care membership by both number of enrolled members and the number of enrolled lives. And so our number of enrolled members grew um, by 84% and the number of enrolled lives increased by 97%. Now I'd like to introduce our well-being manager, Carrie Bashirs, who will discuss this year's health flares and flu clinics. Good afternoon. Carrie Bashirs, well-being manager with HSS. So I'm really excited that we actually brought back health fairs. It's been 2019, so what, two, three years ago. And we were able to actually um, bring back 10. In 2019, we actually offered 11, so it's great to be able to bring them all back. The only location we weren't able to tackle this year was the RECCSF, which generally takes place at the Scottish Rite Center. Um, they didn't hold a in-person meeting this year, so it was virtual. 
However, we were able to add two additional locations uh, for uh, health fairs this year, which were police and fire. So that was really exciting to expand our flu clinics to add the health fairs, and all of our health fairs also had a flu, cl a flu clinic tied in with it. So some of the things that I wanted to highlight, uh, also prior to the pandemic, the airport offered two health fairs. They added one for late night, so 10 p.m. to 12 p.m., um, generally to host for their field workers. We were able to bring that back, and we had our staff there. It was great. They collectively, between the two health fairs, probably had between three and 400 attendees. So it was a, a huge success for that event. We generally try to look at where we see volume of ease of people coming to locations, whether it's for our members, all of our members, or specifically high volume for our employees. And that's for health fairs in general, and then for flu clinics as well. One of the things that we did this year that I think was really helpful to guide our vendors is doing an actual webinar. So the webinar prepped all of our vendors in advance to what to expect for the health fair, because so, some of them had not actually attended. Um, some attended back in 2019, or they may have forgotten. So that was really successful to give them some key uh, responsibilities and what we would expect for them on the day of. One of the things I mentioned about police and fire being new is we were able to include our external MHN vendor, which was the new vendor that started for EAP uh, last month. Um, into the health fair, and then the Cortico Wellness app as well. So that was great to add both of those locations. Go ahead, next slide. And in regards to our flu clinics, we hosted 25 clinics um, at a total of 24 locations. The Department of Emergency Management, we generally host two, and again, that's to be able to serve the shifts and the work that they do there. We had a total of nine open clinics. Open clinics generally are those where there's easier access for all of our members to get into the building. And then we had 16 locations that were restricted generally for the, just those departments. We added one new location for uh, animal care and control this year. And I'm actually really excited that we piloted two locations to offer COVID boosters as well. We were a little late in the game, um, knowing that we have some time that we have to plan in advance to offer clinics in general. We were able to offer one at our location and one also at the uh, Reckon Park County Fair building. We actually estimated about 80 boosters. We ended up distri uh, distributing actually 82. So we were excited. Um, the rules around doing a, a COVID clinic were very different than our flu clinic. They required an online registration. People had to bring their vaccination card to show proof, their medical card. The paperwork was slightly different. Um, the other thing that was interesting is that we had to have a minimum of 10 people because each vial had 10 vaccines. So we had to order in 10s and then really make sure that we weren't wasting. So I was happy that we were able to meet um, our numbers and exceed those for the, the COVID locations. And then overall, we for our flu vaccines, we saw just over 2,300 vaccinated, which is about eight and a half, uh, a little over eight and a half percent increase from prior year. Um, and to put it in perspective, I pulled some numbers looking at pre-COVID. We probably averaged around 4,500 vaccines. So we're about 48% below that. Um, but our goal, again, is with 
the environment we continue to be in, the hybrid work environment, um, we're still learning as we go. So we still feel this year was a, a very successful flu season and uh, health fairs as well. I'll open up for questions. I'm glad to see that you were able to uh, engage in some level of COVID booster shot. I raised that question earlier when you were planning, and I'm glad to see that we were able to try to do that. So my hope is that we can expand it as we go forward in our planning for next year. Thank you. Great work. I will turn it back to Ray Gian. Thank you, Carrie. Again, Ray Gian, Chief Operating Officer. And so now I'll go into some of the results of our open enrollment period. Um, this slide here shows our medical enrollment migration for our active employees. And I do have to acknowledge there is one typographical error on the on this slide. And so what this bar chart is attempting to show is the number of current members in each of the plans, the number of members that are enrolled in the plan beginning 2023, and the number that either increased or decreased. And so in the first um, blue bar for Kaiser Permanente, that second um, number should, um, in parentheses, should be an increase of 90 instead of equaling 90. So our Kaiser membership increased by 90 members. Our Access Plus membership increased by 247. Blue Shield Trio decreased by 201. Our Blue Shield PPO enrollment increased by 58 and our health net canopy care increased by 161. And so throughout the open enrollment period, mostly due to new hires, we did gain 377 additional members. Um, some of those were, were from people that previously away, but the, the majority of those were from people that um, joined the organization during the open enrollment month. The next slide shows the medical enrollment migration for retirees. We did see a, a drop in the number of enrolled in the Blue Shield um, PPO plan, and we will take a look to see um, what caused that. But the majority of the other um, shifts in the enrollment in the retiree plan was related to that split family transition. Next slide. We went through the same exercise for dental. And so the first slide here shows the dental migration of our active employees. And again, it was a pretty stable population. Again, increased mostly due to um, new hires during the month. Next slide. For retirees, um, we did see an increase in retirees. And again, this is mostly due to a number of new retirees. And so in terms of staffing shortages throughout the city, a large portion of it was related to retirements, where um, we unfortunately have not been able to replace a lot of those retiring members. And so um, retirees um, did increase by 319 lives, but no real shift in um, the dental enrollment. For vision, we did see some movement from um, the, the VSP basic plan to the VSP premier plan. And so there was a significant enrollment um, shift uh, from um, VSP basic to VSP premier. And we did see a similar uh, transition for uh, retirees as well, um, again, from basic to premier for people choosing to pay up for those um, more robust benefits. So that concludes um, my um, presentation, but I did want to conclude by expressing my deep appreciation for um, our staff, 
um, throughout and um, leading up to open enrollment. Despite our staffing shortage, um, our staff showed up um, energized every day and were ready to jump on the calls. Um, there was some um, frustration with not being able to get to those car calls quickly enough. And so um, staff were doing whatever they could to try to wrap up their current call with, uh, with at the same time providing great customer service, but they did want to get to the members that were waiting on the line. Everyone stepped in, um, not even when it was not their normal job, and so we had a lot of help from the different units within HSS, even from our finance team, IFTCAR's um, team members, stepping in wherever they could to help us out in member services um, when they were able to do so. Again, so just deep appreciation for staff for hanging in there throughout this very challenging open enrollment period. And so with that, I stand ready to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, it's a very comprehensive presentation by all parties. I'll call on board members for any comments, questions, or observations. Yeah, I echo what uh, our president just said. That was a very thorough presentation and a lot of work put into that. Thank you all. Anything else? Dr. Follinsby, Commissioner Zavatsky, I can't see you, but I call on you if you have any comments or observations about the presentation. Um, I found it very, very comprehensive and very informative, and I had reviewed it prior to um, the meeting to um, really take a look at how open enrollment has improved. And also, I'm more interested in the e-benefits, um, and especially with regard to retirees, because I think a lot of us are still at the paper stage, um, which is a little bit reflective of our generation. Um, but I was impressed with the numbers, and I'm thinking um, if the staff has any conclusion or comment on the effectiveness of e-benefits um, with regard to retirees and their ability to um, transition and use more of the e-benefits program um, and less paper for the future. And that was the, the one area um, that struck me. Also, um, the plan changes. What I've been hearing actually from a number of people had to do with what Commissioner Breslin has brought up in the past, and that was some of the dissatisfaction uh, with Delta. And so I was looking at the changes in dental plans and dental options. Um, and then also, while I see many have upgraded to the um, VSP Premier, um, I think as um, Mr. Rothman pointed out, but some others, because I received um, several calls uh, in the last few months about some problems with VSP, and I was kind of surprised because they've always had very good service. Um, so I think we need to take a look at, um, make sure at VSP and see if, if um, some of their benefits or their um, I guess uh, the coordination um, or collaboration that they can share with um, ophthalmologists that are in the other medical plans and not necessarily on the VSP um, panels. Uh, although what I find is that most, most access to most ophthalmologists um, are very extensive through VSP. But again, the, the dental issue and the e-benefits, um, if there's any comments with regard to those. Thank you. 
Thank you for the feedback, Commissioner. In terms of um, the e-benefits, we do know that um, we do have a member, of, a portion of our retiree population that is not ready yet to transition to e-benefits, but we do a um, concerted effort to train and provide educational opportunities to the retirees that want to try the e-benefits. So we would, um, oftentimes staff would walk the members through e-benefits step-by-step. Again, resetting passwords where needed. Um, and we do try to include in our communications a step-by-step -step guide on how to walk through the e-benefits enrollment. Again, we were pleasantly surprised. Again, for our retirees, 73% of retirees did complete via e-benefits. It is a work in progress. Um, we do share um, your goal, Commissioner, of reducing paper. Uh, we want to be as environmentally friendly as we can. Um, at the same time, we struggle with the limitations on the amount of paper we can cram in those envelopes. Um, so we will be taking a fresh look at our open enrollment materials for um, the open enrollment period for plan year 2024. We're gonna take a fresh look and start from scratch um, just to make sure that we are econ as economical as we can, but still provide the member education that is needed. Uh, we were hoping to do that this year, um, but as I member, uh, mentioned earlier, we did have some staffing challenges um, with our communications staff. It is a mighty staff of three normally, and so we have a communications director, a graphic artist, and then a communications specialist. Unfortunately, right as we were gearing up for open enrollment, um, our communications specialist did need to go on a leave of absence and later retired, and so our communications team was down to two. Um, Unfortunately, um, it was also in the years past the primarily work primary workload of that communication specialist to um, develop the open enrollment materials. So as we went through, um, our communications director and our graphic artists and other staff throughout the organization chipped in to relearn um, how to actually do a lot of the tasks related to um, creating the letters conversing with our um, supplier in terms of our printer. Um, and so we had to learn a lot of this from scratch. We now know um, that we need to make sure that everyone is cross-trained going forward um, so that we won't have these challenges in the future. But uh, we do believe next year we'll have a better opportunity to more thoroughly review those communications and provide you know just kind of the, the information that retirees might need in order to better transition to e-benefits. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, one other last thing, if I may. Um, I forgot, when you mentioned the possibility of having shorter open enrollments, like two weeks for actives and two weeks for um, retirees, the point I think I want to make here is that's going to be more difficult, I think, for our retiree population. And that's mostly because of the, um, first of all, getting the information distributed um, but we have had in our mind for so many years, October open enrollment the whole month. Um, and I think that would be very challenging. So think about that. And we may have to have some uh, discussions and maybe even um, doing some, um, what would you call it, some testing or um, some questionnaires, something that we could send out to the retirees that say if we did this, um, would you participate and would you, you know, find this helpful, more helpful um, for, a, for example, a two-week time period where it would be split? Um, and that was the other concern that I had, but I, that's, we've got a year to work on it. So. 
Thank you, um, Just to keep that in mind, thank you. Yes, thank you, Commissioner. Sure. Just one thing. Um, the feedback is um, appreciated. Uh, again, I just mentioned that is a possibility. It's certainly not something we decided yet. In terms of um, our fresh look at our communications materials, it is our plan to reach out to our groups, both retired and active members, to ask them what went well um, during this year's open enrollment period, especially with the communications, and what could we improve on. We haven't decide, decided on the exact format, whether or not it'll be a, some type of paper or electronic survey or some focus groups, but we are committed to make sure that we do learn from um, our members on what we're doing right, what can be changed, and we'll, of course, incorporate that into the plans for next year. Thank you. Commissioner Follinsby, do you have any comments? Yes, let me make a Briefly. couple of comments. One is that you know, as a uh, commissioner, uh, therefore considered an employee of the city, I received the whole packet. And I want to compliment you and the, your staff really on the clarity of the packet. It, it, in bold letters, if you want to make no changes, you don't have to do anything which was great. And the color coding based on categorization was great. And so I went through the packet just to see how easy it was to sort of navigate the paper. Um, and I really, again, appreciate the clarity um, that has you know, continued to evolve and improve. I also have witnessed now in my seven years on the board, this transition to e-benefits, which I find um, really uh, remarkable. Um, I know we always want to reach 100% and we know what the barriers are, but it has been a really wonderful process to see evolve. You know, I do think that a lot, sometimes very explicit instructions from, say, VSP providers. You know, I can provide, you know, you, a member, um, you know, your your um, prescription um, in an email. And then with an email, one can actually send or forward the content of the prescription to your ophthalmologist. I think a lot of members still get a little confused over the, the legal um, practice restrictions between optometrists and ophthalmologists. And so our members all have access to ophthalmologists. And so this is really an important piece of information in terms of what the prescriptions really are. And there are probably some fairly easy um, steps that every member who's got email could utilize if VSP would step up to the plate and offer to provide those prescriptions in emails, for example, without more complex having to scan into one's own computer or whatever. So again, these are all steps can be taken that can be made stepwise and, and would seem, I think, fairly simple and help um, further the goal, which we all would like to see of a unified medical record um, across health plans um, and across providers. And so again, I compliment you um, and your work. Um, and you, all your staff who are working you know, doubly and sometimes triply hard to accomplish this. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Are there any other comments? Hearing none, we'll now take public comment on this item. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. 
Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when the three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266. Then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll, begin, we'll move on to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Secretary, we have zero callers on the phone line and zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must use the dial-in instructions and select star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Uh, the mind can comprehend only what the end can endure. And we're going to take a recess of 10 minutes. 10 minutes. We stand in recess. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
you. Thank you, President Skull. Scott? Present. Uh, Commissioner Breslin? Present. Commissioner Canning? Present. Commissioner Bollinsby? Present. And Commissioner Zavansky? Present. Thank you, Commissioners, for being prompt and those in the uh, meeting room for cooperating as well. Uh, we will now move to item number 10. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number 10, notice of intent for SFHSS to release actuarial services and consulting services request for, for proposal, an RFP, for services in January 2023 and beginning in July 1st, 2023. This is a discussion item and will be introduced by Executive Director Abby Yant and presented by Michael Visconti, SFHSS Contracts Manager. Director Yan, please. Thank you, Abby Yan, uh, Executive Director of San Francisco Health Service System. Um, I'm having a little flashback here because I think this is about where I started almost five years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, But our very capable uh, Michael Visconti will explain to you how we're proceeding uh, with a um, RFP for our actuarial services because uh, the contract uh, is a five-year contract and the current relationship with Aon is uh, scheduled to term on uh, at the end of June. So we are getting ahead of the game and I will we'll turn it over to Michael to explain the details. Thank you, Director Yant. Uh, Michael Visconti, um, Contracts Administration Manager for the San Francisco Health Service System. Um, and who is the colleague that is sitting with you? Yes. Um, to my left here is, uh, ironically, my right-hand man when it comes to contracts and procurement. Uh, Patrick Chang uh, came over to us with a wealth of experience from our Department of Public Health. Thank you. Thank you, uh, President Scott, and uh, thank you, Commissioners Breslin, and, and thank you, Director Yant, and uh, thank you, uh, uh, Commissioner Canning, and uh, on the phone. Uh, Commissioners Follinsby and Zvansky. Uh, so as we presented to all of you in uh, September, we are doing our uh, actual services RFP. We will be releasing this um, uh, coming up in January. Step a little closer oh, to the sure microphone. Thing. Yes. Thank, thank you, President you. Scott. Um, we will be releasing this in January of this year. Um, I will go through a brief introduction of the process that we covered back in September, any slight changes that we've made in the intervening months, as well as go into the, uh, a brief recap of the process. We keep a very uh, tight ship here at SFHSS. We have very strict policies and procedures surrounding all of our procurements, and uh, we will be adhering to those um, with this procurement um, uh, just as we do with any other. Um, so as we mentioned back in September, this is in relation to Health Service Board terms of reference and the selection of vendors. That's why we present this to you. While it is not necessarily in the best interest of this board to oversee every single procurement for particularly important and key lines of business, such as that for an actuary, we want to make sure that we present to this board uh, that eventual contract for approval. Um, we will also be, after this presentation, uh, incurring a blackout notice, just as we do with all of our uh, rates and benefits, to ensure that there is no improper uh, communications. <clears throat> Now, as with my presentation back in September, the scope of services is going to be very similar to what we are currently using our actuary for, but we have learned quite a bit in the last five years, and we've learned a lot in the last two years with the COVID pandemic about what additional services we can leverage through our actuaries and our health benefits consultants. And we wanna make sure we take into consideration those additional lines of services when we do our RFP and evaluate all of the potential providers of those services for uh, a contract that will begin in July of 2023. 
So from the actual services standpoint, and this is a recap of September, um, again, considerable work with us on the annual rates and premium contributions process, um, our 10-county survey and supporting SFHSS and all the work that we do there, especially with uh, Yuri Goligorsky, and who's a member of our CFO, uh, Iftikhar Hussein's team. Um, they're incredibly uh, valuable uh, members of our team when negotiating our plan renewals. That process is starting, of course, right now. And uh, we want to extend this to the work they do to support us when it comes to audits. Um, one thing we have done uh, is advance our agreement with our current actuary, Aon, um, to really expand upon in detail the audit schedule that has been presented to and approved by this board and make sure that we account for any needs for ad hoc auditing. Uh, one of those, which will be covered in our um, expanded scope as part of our RFP is to make sure that we allow for audits of our performance guarantees. And in the next item that will be presented to this board, we'll go into great detail about the expanded reporting, performance guarantees and metrics that are going to be part of and already part of many of our health service plan agreements and making sure that we have a backstop to all of that and the ability to truly uh, dive into them at the end of a, a given plan year and audit those results is going to be a very critical part critical part to making sure that we stay compliant and, of course, continue to advance the best possible care for our members. Um, in addition, we go through the uh, extensive work we do with them with our trust funds and reserves, uh, the annual financial statements, the support for our external audits. Uh, there was, of course, uh, both ad hoc and scheduled reporting and extensive research. Now, two additional areas that we wanted to carve out that were typically um, uh, included in our contracts, but we did not include in our presentation in September and wanted to very much highlight here today, is the extensive role our actuary and consultant uh, plays when it comes to our healthcare and trust consulting and compliance services. In addition, we want to explore how we can leverage our partnership with our actuary to improve upon our voluntary benefits administration, our COBRA administration, our AB 528 administration when it comes to our community college and school districts, and our healthcare and dependent care flexible counting administration. In addition, as we already discussed last time, was the benefits discrimination testing, but we wanted to really highlight that because compliance is really at the forefront of what we do in our contracts department and what HSS does as a whole. Uh, to recap briefly our schedule, um, there are no changes here from what I presented in September, but as a brief recap, uh, we will be um, beginning our blackout notice with the next agenda item. The RFP will be released in January. Proposals will be due in March. We will have our evaluation panel evaluate the proposals received between March and April. And again, as we discussed last time, that evaluation panel is being comprised of individuals both inside SFHSS and the city, as well as outside the city, to give us the widest range of subject matter experts to weigh in on this very important contract and making sure that we have the best possible provider of these services to SFHSS, this board, and our members. We will culminate with oral interviews in the same way that we did in our last RFP process that uh, Director Yant alluded to earlier. That was one of her first introductions to SFHSS. Um, we do that to ensure that we are receiving the highest quality of service from the eventual team themselves that will be providing those services, just as they do here to the board on many occasions and with us at SFHSS. We will present to the Health Service Board in May of 2023 on the results. And again, as required by the Health Service Board Terms of Reference, that will be for your review and approval. 
That will give us sufficient time to start a new agreement if a new vendor is selected by July 1st, 2023. And we do that by making sure that a key component of our RFP is to include the very clear, comprehensive city terms and conditions that we will review and approve in advance with the city attorney's office and include with the RFP. And we require as part of that RFP that their attorneys and their in-house counsel review and respond back with any terms and conditions that they may have issues with prior to the start of the RFP process. That is what allows us to have this you know, more abbreviated timeline ensure that we are not gonna have those issues during the contracts and negotiation phase. Again, as I spoke to earlier, um, we keep a very tight ship when it comes to our contracts and procurement processes. We ensure that every member of our team, as well as every member of our valuation panel, uh, completes a very detailed um, evaluation of whether they will not have any um, conflicts whatsoever, that they understand the strict confidentiality of the proceedings, and that they understand that every decision has to be done in an unbiased manner and their, their goal is to provide the highest quality of services through this vendor that we select for San Francisco Health Service System, this board, and our members. With that, uh, I'll open up to any, any questions that may have uh, arisen since my September pr uh, presentation. Well, I'm pleased to see the expansion, the slight expansion of, of the enumerated services a few slides back. Uh, we know those things were kind of going on as a sidebar, and the fact that you've now included them in the scope of service, I think, is, is great. So are there other comments or observations from board members? Hearing none, uh, we'll now open this up for public comment. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first, then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments that are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dialing number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266. Then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium. We'll move to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have zero callers on the phone line and zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. 
Thank you, and thank you, Michael, for uh, your leadership and those members of your team who are here today to work on this process on our behalf. We look forward to the end result in May. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, we'll take uh, move to item number 11. Agenda item number 11 is the notice of the blackout periods. This is an action item and will be presented by Abby Yant, Executive Director of SFHSS. Director Yant. Uh, yes, good afternoon, Commissioners. Abby Yant, Executive Director, San Francisco Health Service System. Um, Holly, do you have the memo to? To present. To present. We'll be displaying the notice of the blackout period. So while we're calling it up, um, this is a dual notice. It is notice for the actuarial RFP that you just heard from uh, Michael Visconti on, and that blackout notice period um, begins in January, right, Michael? And uh, and will continue until the contract is approved uh, by this board. Uh, we anticipate no later than the end of June. The, uh, we are entering the rates and benefits cycle. Um, we're about to uh, drop our renewal letters to all of our health plans uh, as early as tomorrow, if not Monday. Um, and so the rates and benefits cycle has begun. So this board is on notice as well as all of our health plans, et cetera, that um, the restricted um, communications is in effect. Ah, there it is. So, blackout period competitive bid process for actuarial services and associated health benefit consulting will commence on December 8th and conclude um, <clears throat> after the board's final approval in June, as I just stated, and the blackout period for annual rates and benefits for the 24 plan year will commence on December 8th and conclude after the board of supervisors final approval of the health plan rates in July of 2023. And this is an action item, I believe, for the board. Thank you. Are there any questions from the board? Hearing none, I'm willing to entertain a motion. Uh, Mr. President, I move that we accept the notice of the two blackout periods as presented. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded that we accept the notice and approve the notice of blackout periods as indicated in the communication. Any further discussion? Hearing none, we'll take public comment. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266. Then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. 
For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have zero callers on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must dial star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We're now ready to vote by roll call on this item. Roll call vote, starting with President Scott. Aye. Commissioner Breslin. Aye. Commissioner Canning. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby. Aye. And Commissioner Zemanski. Aye. The notice for blackout Aye. periods resolution or letter uh, passes unanimously. We're now ready for item 12. Agenda item number 12 is the SFHSS data, what is what we measure, the standards, and express dashboard. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Rin Coleridge, Director of Enterprise Systems and Analytics, Michael Visconti, SFHSS Contracts Manager, and Patrick Chain, SFHSS Principal, Administrative Analyst. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. I just decided to move. No. Uh, Abby Ant, Health Service System Executive Director. Uh, I did want to introduce this uh, matter because there's a little bit of a story to it. And um, so just to highlight the outline, thank you. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the story of how we got here today and then turn it over to the team uh, to talk about population health, the, the measurement plan itself and timeline and process, as well as um, how this aligns with our strategic plan that you recently approved um, and what the next steps are. In addition, Rin will be giving us an update of the um, quarter two um, express dashboard that we she pulls out, out of the all payers claim database. Um, so to talk a little bit about our story I'm trying to these are your notes not mine so i'm trying to find the slide um but our story really began a couple of years ago when um we talked about we started talking about the rfp for the medical plans and we have what a new term I heard just today was we, we have developed over the time that I've been in, in the agency, in addition to the ACPD, we have uh, what is sort of uh, fondly called a data lake <laughs> where we all have, we have so much data right now that it's hard to um, determine where to start and what's the most valuable and all of that. And, and when we did the RFP, we put in there that we were really looking for um, forward thinking on how we would, as a system, um, look at our data and prioritize it and take action. And so we began those conversations with the health plan several years ago um, in that we would come to agreement on what data we were talking about. We would use take, take time to establish a baseline for everybody to kind of get on the same page and what is our baseline. And then we would begin to set targets and benchmarks and measures to measure our improvement in these areas. So a fairly standard process uh, on data, but um, kind of um, not necessarily industry-wide standard. 
in the in the healthcare industry. To to sort of fast forward through all of this. Um, you know, we uh, built, we've, we've had those discussions, the plans have been great, these are not easy conversations to have, they involve lots of different parts of these very complex organizations. Uh, we bring it together, and in the meantime, many of our like organizations, uh, Pacific Business Group on Health, uh, Integrated Healthcare Association, Department of Managed Healthcare, and lo and behold, CMS, Medicare, and Medicaid, everybody's having this same conversation. So um, I guess we were a little clairvoyant <laughs> in, in, in recognizing that. And so I think in many ways, this makes it easier for us to work towards a shared vision and goal and have some alignment. But it doesn't mean it's any less work on our team's part to try to pull this together and get, that, get all of that data uh, for us to work on. So I'm going to sort of stop at that point because I think, and I, as I mentioned earlier, the other thing that has happened um, uh, that has made us all, you know, responsible for our, the, the health of our, our population is this whole discussion around health disparities and how that has become mainstream frontline conversation. We even went so far as to say that it was equity first in our strategic plan. And again, that's really cutting edge and I think a big challenge uh, to all of us that work in healthcare is to identify uh, weak points uh, in the system that really do impact negatively certain populations. So it's, it, it's, it couldn't be done any other way. I mean, it has to be alignment. There has to be you know, a full force of, of, of organizations going forward. Because as, as big as we are, you know, we're, we're not the majority of any health plan or any health provider. And, and you, can't help, you can't expect the providers and the hospital systems to customize their work for us. And we wouldn't want that. You don't want to go into your doctor and get a different treatment because you're on health plan A versus health plan B versus health plan C. You want the same health care no matter what. And so that's, that's what we're working towards with developing a way of, of a common set of measures that we can uh, determine A, where we are today, and B, how to, get to, how to get to a better future. So I'm going to turn it over to Patrick. Is it you next? Oh, Michael. Okay, here we go. Thank you again, Director Yant. Uh, again, uh, Commissioners, Michael Visconti, San Francisco Health Service System, Contracts Administration Manager. So as Director Yant spoke to a minute ago, uh, what we're looking at is how we got here. Um, we're going to begin with the discussion of population health. We're going to define some of these key terms. Some of them were introduced to you as far back as our presentation in December of 2010 when we introduced social determinants of health, the great work uh, by my colleague, Leticia uh, Harris as well as uh, presented to you last year by Derek Soy of our Enterprise Systems and Analytics team in November. So we'll do a brief recap of those, and then we'll try to look at this from a you know, 30,000 foot view. As uh, Director Yant mentioned, there are many different parts working in close concert now. 
As we talked about historically, they were not always working in close co uh, coordination on these things. We go back uh, historically with this data. We are looking at electronic medical records. We are analyzing data solely based on claims, and we are looking more at the individual health of specific individuals. What we're looking at now is population health. Now, what population health does is it refers to the health status and health outcomes within a group of people rather than considering the health of one person at a time. I think it's very appropriate that uh, we can discuss this in the time that we are because I believe the COVID-19 pandemic brought to the forefront what this is like. It, with the example of COVID-19, while everyone in the entire globe was affected by this, we saw the specific populations, those of increased age, those with pre-existing medical conditions, experience the pandemic in different ways, some of them far more detrimental effects. Now, what we're trying to do with this level of data is delve into those details, delve into those populations. Because if you're looking at a group and you look at them as a whole and they look great on a metric and they're hitting whatever the national standard is, but you look to a subgroup and they are experiencing detrimental effects. It, that could be many different things, but if we don't look at that level of detail, if we don't dig into that data, which would be impossible without my colleagues, uh, who you'll hear from shortly, Rin Coleridge, who is our Director of Enterprise Systems and Analytics, and what we have done to leverage our all-player claims database, we wouldn't have that level of insight and we wouldn't have this uh, process that we're looking forward to in the next three to four years. So as a brief recap on how we got here, um, the presentation on social determinants of health, and again, those are the conditions and the environments in which we are born, in which we work, in which we age, generally in which we live, that affect a wide range of health, our internal functioning, and the quality of life that we experience, both the outcomes, the risks, and when we look at these, um, these social determinants of health, um, and this is why we introduced this back in December, was we look at the whole person, health and well-being. Um, this includes health disparities. This includes uh, anything that would uh, inform our strategic plan when we look into um, the effects that it may have on our delivery of care to individuals, and it looks at uh, the outcomes they may be experiencing. Now looking at our measurement plan process, and we'll go into this briefly before we look at a high level view of how this works together with our strategic plan, how this works uh, with the RFP that we spoke to earlier, and how this will work with our alignment with these organizations that Director Yance spoke to, including uh, the, the um, Professional Business Group on Health, formerly known as the Pacific Business Group on Health, um, the Integrated Healthcare Association, uh, as well as of course the Department of Managed Healthcare and CMS. The first stage in this process is we standardize and enhance the collection of patient data across all of our plans and across all of our populations. This is included by race, ethnicity, across narrow age bands, by gender, because again, we wanna be able to uh, grind down into the details of specific populations that may be experiencing hidden inequities, uh, disparities in out outcomes or barriers to their care. But without that level of data, which is only possible in partnership with these organizations and with our healthcare partners, we will not have that level of insight. The next step is we take that insight and we look to the health trends for those specific populations. From there, our goal is to, of course, improve the quality of care for our members.
All right, so this is my 30,000 foot view slide, which I could not have done without the support of Patrick Chang, who is my analyst here on my, on my left. What I want you to take into consideration when looking at this is the number of different moving parts that all need to be done in close collaboration and the number of different individuals both at SFHSS and with our health plan partners that allow us to address all of these um, uh, in, in close collaboration. Again, you will see that our health plan RFP, which uh, our director Yant spoke to you moments ago, informed how we will address this improvement in the level of data we are getting from our health plans. We saw that our 2020 to 2022 strategic plan strongly inf inf influenced our focus on increasing the level of data, but we, we've taken this a step further to both inform and now look to further our 2023 to 2025 strategic plan. From a contract standpoint, this started back in 2020 with us improving our performance guarantees with us aligning them across our different plans and with us bundling them to increase the effect that they would have um, on our plan partners to meet those, uh, those requirements. Now that we've established these core metrics, we are going to align those and work on the same path as the national and regional entities. That includes, of course, PBGH, Integrated Healthcare Association, or IHA, and um, specific subgroups of those. For example, we are a member of the pilot uh, program for the Advanced Primary Care Initiative for PBGH. Over the next three years, SFHSS will leverage our detailed population health data and partnerships to advance our strategic plan. As we've presented in September, uh, and again in November of this year, the key aspects of that strategic plan and the fundamental goals are to foster equity through intentional organizational culture, accessibility, inclusion, and belonging, to advance primary care practice and member engagement, to provide affordable and sustainable health care, to support the mental health and well-being of our membership. And as we discussed earlier today with our in-depth view of the level of service we provide to our members, particularly during open enrollment, to optimize the service for every one of our members that we can provide. What we've done with this slide is try to look at a way to best encapsulate how this alignment, how all of these um, measurement sets support individual goals within um, our strategic plan. You will notice that every one of them affects health equity. You'll notice certain ones affect primary care directly, others affordability, and others mental health. There are some that address multiple ones. This is important to, begin to consider because again, with all of this, uh, this data that we're, we're collecting here, we cannot look at these in a silo. We have to look at each one of these as they can affect our members in different ways. As we further our data process and collection and analysis in partnership with all of our health plans and in collaboration with these organizational groups such as PBGH and IHA, we can take this snapshot of data and we can use it to, uh, to improve the care that our members will receive. So over the next year, beginning with the annual renewal process, which has already begun for 2024, SFHSS will continue to incorporate these population health metrics into quality improvement targets and performance guarantees. This process will align with the timelines that are already in place and support the, the um, PBGH 
their California Quality Collaborative, IHA, and their Align Measure Perform Program, or AMP, and the PBGH Advanced Primary Care Initiative pilot. So going forward, we will leverage these successes that we have already had with our health plans. We will take this data with our analytics division and our partners to set baselines and improvement targets. And in 2023 and 2024, using these benchmarks and improvement targets, SFHSS, in, collabor in collaboration with our health plans, can further analyze specific population data and identify those disparities in care or health outcomes or barriers to care that I spoke to earlier. Finally, I believe that through this active and sustained coordination between SFHSS and our health plan partners and our alignment with key national and regional partners, we can continue to develop insights into the health trends of our population as a whole, as well as underserved segments of our population so that we can prove the overall quality of care received by all of our members. I'll now pass off the mic to our Director of Enterprise Systems and Analytics, Rin Coleridge, um, uh, for the Express Dashboard. Thank you. Uh, hello again, Commissioners. Uh, Rin Coleridge, Director of Enterprise Systems and Analytics. Thank you very much, Patrick, for also being my left-hand person today. Um, Director Coleridge, before you begin, uh, I'm taking note of the time. The clock has stopped on the wall. <laughs> Uh, as we noted earlier today, uh, we have about 30 to 40 minutes, and we know that we also want to uh, go into the board education portion. So depending upon how much you're presenting here, that will impact the education portion. Now, if you'd like for us to carry that over to the next meeting, we could do that. All right, so I just give you those options uh, as we proceed. Thank you very much, President Scott. I feel confident I can move quickly through this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot control the questions or comments that we may have to provide time for. Thank um, you. Nonetheless, I am presenting to you uh, the SFHSS Express dashboard for the Q3 2022. So this covers uh, the period of incurred claims through June 2022 and paid through September. We allow for that three-month runout so that you don't see big drop-offs in claims when you're comparing your previous period um, to your current period. Uh, and, um, you know, you, we've been talking to you about our measurement plan and our strategic plan goals and objectives. Our all-payer claims database, also known as the APCD, is one of our complementary tools that we have to use towards those goals. It allows us to do that additional measurement and monitoring of the health of our population. So whether we're looking at those chronic conditions or the preventions and screenings and wellness indicators as well as quality indicators, and very important, the mental health of our populations. So this, this complements the health plan data. It's a validation tool, but it also allows us to do a lot further drill down and analysis. This is just a summary dashboard, but we have access to a lot more data. And so Michael mentioned um, that and 
his presentation. Next slide, please, Patrick. Uh, I certainly won't read all of these Express Dashboard notes to you. You have them for reference, and you pretty much know what they say, but I'll call out a couple important things. Uh, one is that um, we do not yet have the data for HealthNet Canopy Care. We've been working very closely with our uh, HealthNet partners, and things are moving along and in development, and we're very close to actually getting that uh, in place. A reminder, we do not get the financials for the Medicare population. And lastly, I just wanted to call out that the time period of this dashboard crosses two plan years. And you recall that we moved our administration from the PPO from United Healthcare to Blue Shield in that time period. And so as you look at the full dashboard, you might see some quirky things where both are represented that more happens with any measures that don't look at continuous enrollment. So just to put that as a call out for you. So let's take a look at uh, what those key observations were, for, starting first with our non-Medicare uh, population. And to put this into historical context, gosh, it seems so long ago, and yet it wasn't. Uh, but in uh, July of 2021, which is the beginning part of the period of this report, um, we had a heightened state of COVID cases at that time. They were increasing. There was the gradual drop off going um, where it kept reducing in through October, and then by December 2021 and into Q1 just of this year, that's when things spiked again. So both of those things contributing to um, utilization and costs. I think part of the utilization, um, other people getting their screenings or vaccinations, but also feeling like they could start coming back for their um, normal healthcare types of engagement with the healthcare providers, but then also the spiking COVID cases. So uh, we did see increases in admits per thousand at 1.8, um, acute admissions uh, length of stay for those by half a day. Um, Visits to the ER uh, increase of 34.9 um, patients per thousand and outpatient, or visits per thousand, sorry, and outpatient services per thousand increased by 3,941. Very pleased to report the adult preventive visits uh, as well as child visits. Um, those uh, increased um, double digits on the adults from previous period. The well baby visits did decrease a little bit. Um, chronic conditions, we certainly look at these. They're some of our bigger cost drivers. Uh, prevalence is increasing for diabetes at 3.1 patients per thousand. Asthma was up 1.5 and the low back pain up 2.7. And as we look at our top 11 mental health episodes of care, we do see increased patient and visit counts across almost all of those episodes and really taking a look at the depression uh, and substance abuse depression, see a 265 uh, patient count increase and 3,279 increase in the visits. Uh, so we are at least seeing visits as well as patient counts go up and substance abuse uh, Net, net gain there of 20 patients and 1,154 uh, of the uh, visit counts over previous period. On, on our next slide, we'll take a quick look at the uh, key observations for our Medicare population. Again, we uh, increases in utilization. We were seeing that with this population as well. Um, admits per thousand increased five. Outpatient services per thousand up. Uh, 8,770 over that um, previous period, and um, a pretty large increase in our ER visits per thousand at 49.2. Uh, adult preventive uh, visits, um, 
that also had a double-digit increase, so nice to see our members getting back for their preventive care. Uh, chronic condition prevalence, uh, med measured again in patients per thousand. We see increases in diabetes up 16.8, hypertension 4.9, and the low back pain there increased 12.37. Quality indicators reveal that we uh, had some increases in readmissions per thousand at 1.3. Uh, avoidable admissions were up 1.1 and complications 0.8. We'll also take a quick look um, at the Medicare population by risk band, um, which revealed increases in the struggling and in crisis um, populations compared over previous period. And we're just going to take a very quick look um, the, uh, on the detail of those key observations as these next few slides. Um, so, you know, when we talk about our strategic plan, we're looking at those cost and utilization trends. They tie to, to our affordability, and we're working with... Um, when we hear, for example, the increase in the ER visits, just coordinating with our plans, is it the right right care at the right setting? Um, and again, some of this, these increases in utilization with some of those outpatient services, not, not a bad thing at all, and ultimately um, is, is a good thing. And we, we can layer that equity lens over all of this and really dive deep. Uh, same thing on a primary care perspective. This is how these tools complement, because you know we want to make sure people are getting into those preventive visits and we did see the double-digit increases for, for most of those. On, on that next slide is where we look at these chronic conditions. And certainly from an affordability perspective, these are key cost drivers for our populations, uh, especially diabetes. I think it's the top driver. And we see that increased um, 2.1 patients per 1,000. So... Um, again, we'll drill into those um, populations. We can monitor those episodes of care to see, you know, what were acute flare-ups for some of these stratified chronic conditions versus um, just maintenance type of visits, and that gives us some indication about how well managed those populations are, and we can work with our planned partners on that. Next slide, please. Thanks, Patrick. Um, and finally, in our non-Medicare population, here's the drill down on those top 11 mental health episodes. Again, we um, almost all of them are seeing increases in um, patients and visits over that previous period. We know um, there's... Uh, increasing need for mental health services, the um, out of COVID as well as the stigma associated with mental health care is, is um, decreasing, which is nice to see. So, you know, out of our strategic initiatives, just working with vendors and city partners to identify our best practice resources um, for members to be able to access and utilize their health care services. So um, an increase is actually uh, a good thing for us. Uh, just to call out... Um, on the previous period data points, uh, those ones in a slightly darker font, those those two bottom rows are inverted. That was corrected in the version that did go onto the um, website, although I do believe the version you might have predates that correction, so just wanted to call that out for you, commissioners. And very quickly into the Medicare population on this next slide. Again, a reminder, there's no financials, but that doesn't mean we can't look at things from an affordability lens as well as those equity lenses. So, you know, when we're seeing um, those uh, visits to the ER um, and, and some of our other quality markers when we're looking at those readmission rates or the avoidable admissions, um, you know, they're, they're certainly indicators of increased cost, and so just working, you know, doing the further analysis and working plan partners to ensure um, that uh, 
that all of that care was was appropriate and uh, we're taking advantage of that. And uh, finally, just a note uh, on uh, the risk of our Medicare population. So this is a stratification by categories based on risk scores, moving from healthy to in crisis. We did have an increase um, of uh, 0.8, I think it was, no, 1.4 into the struggling and uh, yeah, one 1% uh, 1 increase of our population that moved over into the in crisis. And so we know our population as they age are going to have one or more chronic conditions. And so, you know, and they have significant care needs and it's about, you know, working with our planned partners um, who do have care programs for the, you know, this advancing age population and ensuring that, again, we've got our members engaged into that. So I'm going to end my comments there. For your reference, the entire dashboard referenced is in the appendix, and I'll leave it there for uh, Michael and I to uh, entertain any questions or comments that you have. Are there questions from the board regarding... Yeah, this is... This is Commissioner Follow can I Commissioner Follows me? Yeah. I'm sorry, I got disconnected in the midst, Michael, of your presentation. So I had one uh, question for you. Um, the slide is gone, but there was a slide that showed several categories um, that were sort of then um, uh, uh, put into various the five different strategic plan initiatives. So particularly, I want to know how that slide was generated. For example, depression, you know, administration of the uh, depression scale. Um, primary care wasn't listed, but at least, you know, when I was in practice, we were asked as primary care providers to actually look into depression, um, to, you know, both independent, but also in association with, with diabetes, for example, and to administer the PHQ-9 you know, questionnaire, and then go got reminders to do it again. So I was wondering how that slide got um, generated and why primary care was not listed for some of the conditions um, on the sort of um, uh, uh, y-axis. Do you know uh, what slide I'm talking about? It's not on the screen anymore. Thank you, Holly. Um, yes. So uh, as to that slide, um, this is only meant to be sort of an example of how we will be aligning these across them. I think you made an excellent point. Um, as we delve into each one of these independently, I believe they will cover many more of these categories and many more of the goals of our strategic plan. Uh, you brought up an excellent one. So thank you, Dr. Follinsby. Yeah, great. Thank you. Because I think even the high dose opioids, a lot of times they're being prescribed by primary care providers. And so I think that, that as we explore this in more detail, we might find a more and more overlap. And then um, the qu second question or comment I had for Rin is I'm, I'm still, I'm sorry, you've made these presentations before and they're superb and very um, detailed. And I'm still a little confused about how some of the the data um, gets generated. You know, there's a lot of, I know obviously admissions and ER visits and some of those things are very clear and there's no squabble. But as you all know, DHS has now has looked into various Medicare Advantage plans uh, for sort of overcoding um, diagnoses, carrying you know, diagnoses from year to year. And so I'm not always clear when you look at encounters whether you're looking at the primary reasons, such as low back pain or diabetes, or all the ancillary diagnoses that may be added to another visit, 
um, in order to somehow support sometimes the acuity score for billing purposes through Medicare Advantage or, or rating purposes through Medicare Advantage, for example, in the Medicare population. Of course, that extends over to our non-Medicare population. Thank you, Dr. Pollensby. Um, that's that's a good point. Uh, the dashboard itself, which is just a pre-canned report we've worked on, that is looking at the primary diag diagnosis for that um, visitor episode. However, we do have um, these ad hoc reporting tools that let us go into an amazing amount of detail and granularity. And so depending the type of analysis we want to do on our populations, we are also looking at um, all of the diagnosis codes that are on the record or that exist for that patient. Uh, so, um, and when we've done some analyses before trying to capture various pieces of information with regards to initiatives we might want to undertake for our population. I will also say one of the other uses that we've done with this um, claims database previously is look at that data. Um, I'd say from a bit of an auditing perspective, you know, is there a there there? We've heard the upcoding before. There were some things happening with some pharmaceuticals. Um, and we went in and we looked at the data and we did not see that in our population. Um, so, um, so yeah, both things, but the report here is looking at primary diagnosis. Thank you very much. I just want to say that, again, when I was... As my role as a primary care provider at various points in my career, I was, all, you know, I often had seven, eight, nine diagnoses for a visit, um, <laughs> um, you know, because you're trying to address all the problems on a problem list. And some of that was, of course, driven by, you know, the uh, not necessarily, well, you know, not necessarily my visit because I got, I was salaried, but, um, but by the acuity that the health plan, um, you know, desired. As well, and so I, I never was fraudulent, but there may be seven, eight, or nine visits with one one reason maybe put in as primary, then all of the rest of them as are secondary diagnosis that were had to be addressed uh, during that visit, uh, both in in evaluation and um, and prescriptions or planning or whatever. So thank you very much. All right. Are there other questions? Hearing none, we'll take public comment at this time. Thank you, President Scott. In-person public comment will be first, then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. For those callers on the line, when I welcome you on the call, you're encouraged to state your name clearly, although you may remain anonymous. I'll give you an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining, and when your three minutes have ended, I'll thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute, and the moderator will unmute the next caller. Remote viewing is available on SFGovTV and online using WebEx. Opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by dialing the number on the screen. The dial-in number is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. When prompted, use access code 2495-635-5266. Again, 2495-635-5266. Then press pound and pound again. You'll enter the meeting as an attendee on the public comment call line and dial star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. When the system message says your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium. We will move to our virtual public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. 
Fourth Secretary, we have zero callers on the phone line, and zero callers have specifically entered the public comment queue at this time. A reminder to all callers on the line, you must use the dial-in instructions and select star three now if you want to join public comment for this specific agenda item. We will wait five more seconds and then close public comment for this agenda item. Board Secretary, there are still no callers in the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. I am going to suggest that as uh, claim the prerogative of the chair that we'll carry over the board education uh, segment to our next meeting. And at this time, we will take up item 14. Agenda item number 14, reports and updates from contracted health plan representatives. This is a discussion item. I am given to understand that there are no updates uh, from the plan representatives. Has that in any way changed or modified? Would all of the plan representatives please, who are in the room please stand? On behalf of the board, we'd like to thank you for working with us during this past calendar year and wish you and your families a very pleasant holiday season. Thank you. And with that, uh, having had no public, no comment from the plan representatives, we will not need to uh, request public comment. So I'm now moving to item 15, which is to adjourn this meeting and wish everyone a very happy holiday season. Adjournment at 3.57 p.m. Thank you.